Section 38 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan, Revolt 1, Part 2. He groped his way, head down, borne on by the contradictory forces warring in him, and hurling into his incoherent works a fiery and strong quality of life which he could not express, though he was joyously and proudly conscious of it. The consciousness of his new vigor made him able for the first time to envisage squarely everything about him, everything that he had been taught to honor, everything that he had respected without question, and he judged it all with insolent freedom. The veil was rent, he saw the German lie. Every race, every art has its hypocrisy. The world is fed with a little truth and many lies. The human mind is feeble. Pure truth agrees with it but ill. Its religion, its morality, its states, its poets, its artists must all be presented to it swathed in lies. These lies are adapted to the mind of each race. They vary from one to the other. It is they that make it so difficult for nations to understand each other, and so easy for them to despise each other. Truth is the same for all of us, but every nation has its own lie, which it calls its idealism. Every creature therein breathes it from birth to death. It has become a condition of life. There are only a few men of genius who can break free from it through heroic moments of crisis when they are alone in the free world of their thoughts. It was a trivial thing which suddenly revealed to Christophe the lie of German art. It was not because it had not always been visible that he had not seen it. He was not near it. He had not recoiled from it. Now the mountain appeared to his gaze because he had moved away from it. He was at a concert of the Stadtische Taunhalle, the concert was given in a large hall occupied by ten or twelve rows of little tables, about two or three hundred of them. At the end of the room was a stage where the orchestra was sitting. All round Christophe were officers dressed up in their long dark coats, with broad shaven faces, red, serious, and commonplace. Women talking and laughing noisily, ostentatiously at their ease jolly little girls smiling and showing all their teeth, and large men hidden behind their beards and spectacles, looking like kindly spiders with round eyes. They got up with every fresh glass to drink a toast. They did this almost religiously. Their faces, their voices changed. It was as though they were saying mass. They offered each other the libations. They drank of the chalice with a mixture of solemnity and buffoonery. The music was drowned under the conversation and the clinking of glasses, and yet everybody was trying to talk and eat quietly. The Herr Kanzermeister, a tall, bent old man, with a white beard hanging like a tail from his chin, and a long aquiline nose, with spectacles, looked like a philologist. All these types were familiar to Christophe, but on that day he had an inclination. He did not know why to see them as caricatures. There are days like that when, for no apparent reason, the grotesque in people and things, which in ordinary life passes unnoticed, suddenly leaps into view. 
The program of the music included the Egmont Overture, a valse of Waldteufel, Tannhauser's Pilgrimage to Rome, the Overture to the Merry Wives of Nikolai, the Religious March of Atali, and a Fantasy on the North Star. The orchestra played the Beethoven Overture correctly and the valse deliciously. During the pilgrimage of Tannhauser, the uncorking of bottles was heard. A big man sitting at the table next to Christophe beat time to the Merry Wives by imitating Falstaff. A stout old lady in a pale blue dress with a white belt, golden pince-nez on her flat nose, red arms, and an enormous waist, sang in a loud voice, leader of Schumann and Brahms. She raised her eyebrows, made eyes at the wings, smiled with a smile that seemed to curdle on her moon face, made exaggerated gestures, which must certainly have called to mind the café concert, but for the majestic honesty which shone in her. This mother of a family played the part of the giddy girl, youth, passion, and Schumann's poetry had a faint smack of the nursery. The audience was in ecstasies, but they grew solemn and attentive when there appeared the choral society of the Germans of the South, Süddeutschen Manner Liedertafel, who alternately cooed and roared part songs full of feeling. There were forty, and they sang four parts. It seemed as though they had set themselves to free their execution of every trace of style that could properly be called choral, a hotchpotch of little melodious effects, little timid pooling shades of sound, dying pianissimos with sudden swelling roaring crescendos, like someone beating on an empty box, no breadth or balance, a mawkish style. It was like bottom. Let me play the lion. I will roar you as gently as any sucking dove. I will roar you as it were a nightingale. Christophe listened from the beginning with growing amazement. There was nothing new in it all to him. He knew these concerts, the orchestra, the audience, but suddenly it all seemed to him false, all of it, even to what he most loved, the Egmont Overture, in which the pompous disorder and correct agitation hurt him in that hour like a want of frankness. No doubt it was not Beethoven or Schumann that he heard, but their absurd interpreters, their cud-chewing audience whose crass stupidity was spread about their works like a heavy mist. No matter. There was in the works, even the most beautiful of them, a disturbing quality which Christophe had never before felt. What was it? He dared not analyze it, deeming it a sacrilege to question his beloved masters. But in vain did he shut his eyes to it. He had seen it, and in spite of himself he went on seeing it. Like the Vergognosa at Pisa he looked between his fingers. He saw German art stripped, all of them, the great and the idiots, laid bare their souls with a complacent tenderness. Emotion overflowed, moral nobility trickled down, their hearts melted in distracted effusions. The sluice-gates were opened to the fearful German tender-heartedness. It weakened the energy of the stronger, it drowned the weaker under its grayish waters. It was a flood. In the depths of it slept German thought. And what thoughts were those of a Mendelssohn, a Brahms, a Schumann? And following them, the whole legion of little writers of affected and tearful leader, built on sand, never rock, wet and shapeless clay, 
It was all so foolish, so childish often, that Christophe could not believe that it never occurred to the audience. He looked about him, but he saw only gaping faces, convinced in advance of the beauties they were hearing and the pleasure that they ought to find in it. How could they admit their own right to judge for themselves? They were filled with respect for these hallowed names. What did they not respect? They were respectful before their programs, before their glasses, before themselves. It was clear that mentally they dubbed everything excellent that remotely or nearly concerned them. Christophe passed in review the audience and the music alternately. The music reflected the audience, the audience reflected the music. Christophe felt laughter overcoming him, and he made faces. However, he controlled himself. But when the Germans of the South came and solemnly sang the confession that reminded him of the blushes of a girl in love, Christophe could not contain himself. He shouted with laughter. Indignant cries of, Shh! were raised. His neighbors looked at him, scared. Their honest, scandalized faces filled him with joy. He laughed louder than ever. He laughed. He laughed until he cried. Suddenly the audience grew angry. They cried, Put him out! He got up and went, shrugging his shoulders, shaking with suppressed laughter. His departure caused a scandal. It was the beginning of hostilities between Christophe and his birthplace. After that experience, Christophe shut himself up and set himself to read once more the works of the hallowed musicians. He was appalled to find that certain of the masters whom he loved most had lied. He tried hard to doubt it at first, to believe that he was mistaken. But no, there was no way out of it. He was staggered by the conglomeration of mediocrity and untruth which constitutes the artistic treasure of a great people. How many pages could bear examination? From that time on he could begin to read other works, other masters, who were dear to him, only with a fluttering heart. Alas! There was some spell cast upon him. Always there was the same discomfiture. With some of them his heart was rent. It was as though he had lost a dear friend, as if he had suddenly seen that a friend in whom he had reposed entire confidence had been deceiving him for years. He wept for it. He did not sleep at night. He could not escape his torment. He blamed himself. Perhaps he had lost his judgment. Perhaps he had become altogether an idiot. No, no. More than ever he saw the radiant beauty of the day, and with more freshness and love than ever he felt the generous abundance of life. His heart was not deceiving him. But for a long time he dared not approach those who were the best for him, the purest, the holy of holies. He trembled at the thought of bringing his faith in them to the test. But how resist the pitiless instinct of a brave and truthful soul, which will go on to the end and see things as they are, whatever suffering may be got in doing so? So he opened the sacred works. He called upon the last reserve, the imperial guard. At the first glance he saw that they were no more immaculate than the others. He had not the courage to go on. Every now and then he stopped and closed the book. Like the son of Noah, he threw his cloak about his father's nakedness. Then he was prostrate in the midst of all these ruins. He would rather have lost an arm than have tampered with his blessed illusions. In his heart he mourned, 
But there was so much sap in him, so much reserve of life, that his confidence in art was not shaken. With a young man's naive presumption, he began life again, as though no one had ever lived it before him. Intoxicated by his new strength, he felt, not without reason perhaps, that with a very few exceptions there is almost no relation between living passion and the expression which art has striven to give to it. But he was mistaken in thinking himself more happy or more true when he expressed it. As he was filled with passion, it was easy for him to discover it at the back of what he had written. But no one else would have recognized it through the imperfect vocabulary with which he designated its variations. Many artists, whom he condemned, were in the same case. They had had, and had translated, profound emotions, but the secret of their language had died with them. Christophe was no psychologist. He was not bothered with all these arguments. What was dead for him had always been so. He revised his judgment of the past with all the confident and fierce injustice of youth. He stripped the noblest souls, and had no pity for their foibles. There were the rich melancholy, the distinguished fantasy, the kindly-thinking emptiness of Mendelssohn. There were the bead-stringing and the affectation of Weber, his dryness of heart, his cerebral emotion. There was Liszt, the noble priest, the circus-rider, neoclassical and vagabond, a mixture in equal doses of real and false nobility, of serene idealism and disgusting virtuosity. Schubert, swallowed up by his sentimentality, drowned at the bottom of leagues of stale, transparent water. The men of the heroic ages, the demigods, the prophets, the fathers of the church, were not spared. Even the great Sebastian, the man of ages, who bore in himself the past and the future, Bach, was not free of untruth, of fashionable folly, of school-chattering. The man who had seen God, the man who lived in God, seemed sometimes to Christophe to have had an insipid and sugared religion, a Jesuitical style, Rococo. In his cantatas there were languorous and devout airs, dialogues of the soul coquetting with Jesus, which sickened Christophe, then he seemed to see chubby cherubim with round limbs and flying draperies, and also he had a feeling that the genial cantor always wrote in a closed room. His work smacked of stuffiness. There was not in his music that brave outdoor air that was breathed in others. Not such great musicians, perhaps, but greater men, more human than he. Like Beethoven or Hendel. What hurt him in all of them, especially in the classics, was their lack of freedom. Almost all their works were constructed. Sometimes an emotion was filled out with all the commonplaces of musical rhetoric, sometimes with a simple rhythm, an ornamental design, repeated, turned upside down, combined in every conceivable way in a mechanical fashion. These symmetrical and twaddling constructions, classical and neoclassical sonatas and symphonies exasperated Christophe, who, at that time, was not very sensible of the beauty of order and vast and well-conceived plans. That seemed to him to be rather mason's work than musician's. 
But he was no less severe with the romantics. It was a strange thing, and he was more surprised by it than anybody. But no musicians irritated him more than those who had pretended to be, and had actually been, the most free, the most spontaneous, the least constructive, those who, like Schumann, had poured drop by drop, minute by minute, into their innumerable little works their whole life. He was the more indignantly in revolt against them as he recognized in them his adolescent soul and all the follies that he had vowed to pluck out of it. In truth, the candid Schumann could not be taxed with falsity. He hardly ever said anything that he had not felt. But that was just it. His example made Christophe understand that the worst falsity in German art came into it not when the artists tried to express something which they had not felt, but rather when they tried to express the feelings which they did in fact feel, feelings which were false. Music is an implacable mirror of the soul. The more a German musician is naive and in good faith, the more he displays the weaknesses of the German soul, its uncertain depths, its soft tenderness, its want of frankness, its rather sly idealism, its incapacity for seeing itself, for daring to come face to face with itself. That false idealism is the secret sore even of the greatest, of Wagner. As he read his works, Christoph ground his teeth. Lohengrin seemed to him a blatant lie. He loathed the huckstering chivalry, the hypocritical mummery, the hero without fear and without a heart, the incarnation of cold and selfish virtue, admiring itself, and most patently self-satisfied. He knew it too well. He had seen it in reality, the type of German Pharisee, foppish, impeccable, and hard, bowing down before its own image, the divinity to which it has no scruple about sacrificing others. The flying Dutchman overwhelmed him with its massive sentimentality and its gloomy boredom. The loves of the barbarous decadence of the tetralogy were of a sickening staleness. Siegmund, carrying off his sister, sang a tenor drawing-room song. Siegfried and Brunhilde, like respectable German married people, in the Götterdämmerung, laid bare before each other, especially for the benefit of the audience, their pompous and voluble conjugal passion. Every sort of lie had arranged to meet in that work. False idealism, false Christianity, false Gothicism, false legend, false gods, false humans. Never did more monstrous convention appear than in that theatre which was to upset all the conventions. Neither eyes, nor mind, nor heart could be deceived by it for a moment. If they were, then they must wish to be so. They did wish to be so. Germany was delighted with that doting childish art an art of brutes let loose, and mystic, namby-pamby little girls. And Christophe could do nothing. As soon as he heard the music he was caught up like the others, more than the others, by the flood, and the diabolical will of the man who had let it loose. He laughed, and he trembled, and his cheeks burned, and he felt galloping armies rushing through him. And he thought that those who bore such storms within themselves might have all allowances made for them. What cries of joy he uttered when in the hallowed works which he could not read without trembling he felt once more his old emotion, 
ardent still, with nothing to tarnish the purity of what he loved. These were glorious relics that he saved from the wreck. What happiness they gave him! It seemed to him that he had saved a part of himself. And was it not himself? These great Germans, against whom he revolted, were they not his blood, his flesh, his most precious life? He was only severe with them because he was severe with himself. Who loved them better than he? Who felt more than he the goodness of Schubert, the innocence of Haydn, the tenderness of Mozart, the great heroic heart of Beethoven? Who, more often than he, took refuge in the murmuring of the forests of Weber and the cool shade of the cathedrals of John Sebastian, raising against the grey sky of the north, above the plains of Germany, their pile of stone, and their gigantic towers with their sun-tipped spires. But he suffered from their lies, and he could not forget them. He attributed them to the race, their greatness to themselves. He was wrong. Greatness and weaknesses belong equally to the race whose great shifting thought flows like the greatest river of music and poetry at which Europe comes to drink. And in what other people would he have found the simple purity which now made it possible for him to condemn it so harshly? He had no notion of that. With the ingratitude of a spoiled child, he turned against his mother the weapons which he had received from her. Later, later, he was to feel all that he owed to her and how dear she was to him. But he was in a phase of blind reaction against all the idols of his childhood. He was angry with himself, and with them, because he had believed in them absolutely and passionately, and it was well that it was so. There is an age in life when we must dare to be unjust, when we must make a clean sweep of all admiration and respect got at second hand, and deny everything, truth and untruth, everything which we have not of ourselves known for truth, through education and through everything that he sees and hears about him, a child absorbs so many lies and blind follies mixed with the essential verities of life that the first duty of the adolescent who wishes to grow into a healthy man is to sacrifice everything. End of section 38